Hi, I'm Maddie, and I don't have a hobby. Hi, I'm Haley, and I have too many hobbies. And I've taken it upon myself to get Maddie hooked on just about anything. In this podcast, we're talking true crime. We're talking Enneagram. We're talking mental health. We're talking Scientology. And just about everything in between. So we're inviting you on a journey that you definitely didn't ask to be invited on. In the hopes that you too would like to be Average, average girls Average and only Average and only Yeah. Oh, that was me picking my nose, right? I love that. that. And I'm going to put on my essential oils that Maddie thinks are fake. They are fake. What's but, up, guys? Mm-hmm. Hey. We're back at it. Another episode. Welcome to our studio. Yeah, this is actually different for us because we're yeah. usually downstairs. Right now we're in Haley's bed. Very yeah. cozy. It's raining outside, so I'm not mad about it. But yeah, um, how are you, Haley? <laughs> I'm great, Maddie. How are you? Good. Do you, wait, did we even come up with a hot take? Yeah, we did. We're going to do <laughs> our hot take today. It's going to be childhood trauma, but not like our actual trauma because <laughs> Haley and I do have like <laughs> we do. legit trauma that is serious. <laughs> That we've had to work through for a long time, for many, many years. Um, I, I have to, I, I, someone's calling. I have to go. What? Oh. Oh. Keep going. Just keep going. I didn't catch up. I thought you were legit about to answer a <laughs> like, phone call. I've been calling on there. Oh, what if one of my students calls on that phone? I know. That's what I was thinking. That's why I went We're there. on my work phone. Yep. Uh, so I'm not an idiot, but. I didn't say you were. I know, but I just didn't catch your joke. Okay. Anyways. Um, we're going to talk about some, like funny trauma not not our real stuff okay? like our define like our defining like something that just really scarred us but like it doesn't have but, like to be it was kind of funny but like still scarred us yeah yeah bit. yeah okay do you have one um well my my normal go-to response in general probably the most scarring thing that I still haven't let my parents live down is the fact that I have walked in on them having sex not just once not just twice but three times oh um yeah no it wasn't a good time it wasn't any of the times it happened. The first time, no, there's there's some disputing of how this went down. Mm-hmm. My parents insist that it wasn't in my bed the first time, but I am 100,000% positive. It was so scarring, I couldn't possibly forget it. Wait, it was in your bed? So here's the thing. Whenever I was little, I was re- I was just scared to sleep by myself all the time. My parents slept mm-hmm. in separate beds, mm-hmm. and my dad's room was right next to my room. So in the middle, I would try to go to sleep in my room. An hour would go by. I inevitably would end up like running and jumping into his bed because I was too scared. Well, okay. apparently I was sleeping in one morning. I'm in his bed. He had gotten up. He and my mom felt like getting frisky. My bed was open. Oh. His bed was not. Oh, okay. So that apparently, makes more sense. So I wake up in the morning. Eight-year-old me decided that I'm going to go to my room because it's my room. Well, you went to their room, and it's their Yeah, but they weren't even sleeping in there. Okay, the fan keeps blowing my hair, like, into my nostrils. That's kind of sexy, though. No, like, like, in my nostrils, and I, like, want to pick my nose. Nope. Well, it'll get hot in here. No, I know. I don't want you to turn it off. I'm just saying that's why I'm picking my nose. This is so romantic. Keep going. Um... So you walk in your room. Oh, right. Okay, so I walk in my room, butt naked. I'm screaming. They're screaming. Big scream fest. They insisted it didn't happen this way. I remember. I, I couldn't possibly forget then um, it happened. Well, I, I'm sure it's happened other times, but I, I've just blocked it out. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I need to to be able to go through with my life. But also in high school, one time, senior year of high school, came in my front door, 
my parents thought that I drove that night wherever I was. And so they thought they'd hear the garage door open if they like, you know, if, if I came home sure. and they were home alone, but I had gone with a friend. So I came in the front door and we have like little side panel windows next to our front door at my house. Okay. So we'd come in and I like looked and I like knocked on the door and nobody's answering. And so I like looked in the window and I see far more than I ever wanted to see on my living room ottoman, Stacy. Is she going to kill you for putting this in No. Here? You want to know why she's not going to kill me? Because she put this on Facebook. She thought it was so funny. Because my mom's oh that my mom. Gosh. My mom's, like, going to post her whole life on Facebook because she thinks it's hilarious, has no boundaries. So she literally posted about it because she thought it was so funny. But, so I'm screaming. They're laughing hysterically. My dad comes to answer the door wrapped up in a blanket, dying laughing. I'm like, nobody talk to me. Nobody look at me. I go upstairs. I come back downstairs for a glass of water, like, 15 minutes later. No. Back at it. They thought, I, they thought I learned my lesson the first time. I thought they learned their lesson the first time. So I saw them having sex twice in one night. No. On my living room ottoman. We don't have the ottoman anymore, but I guarantee you I never sat on it again. And who'd they sell it to? I don't know. I think they just threw it away. That's I why mean, I'm afraid to buy furniture from, like, Facebook Market, Facebook market or something. Because I'm like, I, I don't know the stories. <laughs> I don't know what this sofa has seen. Yeah, there's a middle-aged couple that definitely had sex on that oh, that couch that you bought. No. No. All right, what's yours? I'm ready. I don't want to think about my parents having well, sex Well, now I'm just thinking about, like, my stories. My parents having sex. No. <laughs> now you can't stop like, mentioning my parents like having that, sex. Like, stories like that, though. And no, I'm not picturing Stacy. Stacy. And Scott. Um, I, one time, okay, so my mom was a flight attendant. And so was my she mom. You're was, not special? Yeah. I'm. I'm clear. <laughs> Are you gonna let me have my moment? Are you done? Do you want to talk more? This actually makes me feel better because last time you made fun of me the entire podcast, and I got now mad. You're coming so now I'm gonna you. come at you. Are you done? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. We'll check back later. Yeah. Um, my mom is a flight attendant. So is Haley's mom. <laughs> she really wanted you guys to know that too. Um, and so she would fly like six days a week, and my sister and I are seven years apart, and she would have parties at our house every once in a while and uh, one time I walked upstairs I'm like in fifth grade when she's a senior and so I was used to her like having people or whatever or her having people over or whatever and I would like walk downstairs with like a bunch of people over I'd like climb onto the counter and like get a glass of water <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like hey guys I'm like in fifth grade trying to like do my homework um but this one time I went upstairs and my mom's room is like on the left hand side my room's like in the middle at the top of the stairs yeah and then my sister's room is like around the corner on the like far right and i went into my room did whatever i had to grab something from my mom's bathroom so i walk into my mom's bedroom and all of a sudden i see my sister's two best friends her like best best friend on the planet and her boyfriend <gasps> are yes. both of our sex stories yeah, because you got me thinking about, like, We're both, funny... We've both been scarred by sex yeah. <laughs> And so I walk in, and they're on my mom's <gasps> bed. Ew! Fully going for it. And I started bawling. You had to. That and I got so mad at my sister because I was like, you're letting them do that? Oh, mom. Did she know they were doing it? I don't know if she knew 100% they were doing it, but I mean, they, I mean if they went upstairs together, like, I'm why sure would they, she, like, you know, I would have never thought to have somebody in one of my blech, friends, no. even though I do remember having sleepovers and sleeping in my friend's parents' bed sometimes, not with them, if I needed to clarify that, I don't know if that needed clarification, but sometimes we would. There's another time I walked in on my best friend's brother and his girlfriend, that mm -hmm. was also very scarring. 
I walked in on a couple people in high school too, but it was but it, then it wasn't scarring. Then it was like I never walked in do. on any of my friends, but oh, I really? walked in on other people's friends. Well, yeah, they were never really close friends. I guess now that you say that, I don't know. Oh God, um, I'm sorry that I couldn't come up with another topic of a scarring childhood story. I mean, I feel like there's probably plenty of like really oh, weird ones. I'm sure. I just have the worst memory ever, so I need someone to, like, Did we tell that story of the time I got my period in uh, my seventh grade class before a presentation? I think that was did. pretty scarring. Yeah, and we that talked about bad. our other friend. Um, yeah. All right. I think that's enough scarring memories for today. Any other trauma you want to talk there? Uh, I don't really remember. I don't know if it's a coping mechanism. Yeah, maybe that's yeah, why I have a bad memory. I'm just coping through my whole life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, like, shutting oh, why? Yeah, if you just, like, repress it. But there's also things that I want to remember that I can't. Okay, whatever. My okay, we're going to deal with that later. Yeah, Maddie remembers nothing. Okay, so we're doing another, in case you weren't wondering, about Jim Jones and Jonestown. So this one I'm really excited to do because, okay, here was my reasoning. Ariel Cook, God love Ariel Cook, wanted us to do cults. And we actually got a oh. couple people. Nicolette also said she wanted cults. Jeff wanted cults. So I was like, all right, let's 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 go for it because I think cults are interesting. But the, how thing, the reason I chose this one, A, because it's wild. And I don't know how everyone in the world doesn't know about it. And B, did I say one and then B? <laughs> 1B. 1B. Q. I think that if I were to, if you were to give me an option of like which cult, if you had to join a cult, which one would you join? This one I would have accidentally joined. Wait, really? Yeah. I think this one I would have gotten brainwashed. Oh. But I think cults are so crazy because I think of myself as very immune to like Group stuff think. like this. Yeah. Like I'm like, oh no, I would never yeah. do that. But reading into these, I totally see how people got. Really? Okay. I don't know very much about cults, so maybe I'm saying this out of ignorance, mm-hmm. but I feel like I would never get caught. Well, up. that's why I wanted to talk about this one, because I think if there was one that you and I would get stuck in, it might be this one. Okay. You and I lash make a wish. Um, what? You're supposed to put it on your finger, and then I blow it off your finger to make the wish. So oh, Whatever. Is that why my wishes never came true? Yes, it is. And that's why all of mine always do. I start plucking out all of my lashes. <laughs> <Okay>. so <you> can... <laughs> What's that called when you pull out all your hairs? A lot. It's trichotillomania. Yeah. I feel like that might be a different thing. Trichotillomania. Trichotillomania. No, I think it is that. Well, I always get it confused later. with that one. I always say we're going to fact check stuff, and we never do, so no, I just I edit know. out me saying we're going to fact check <laughs> that yeah, later. I'm not going to set myself up. <laughs> yeah, okay, go. Um, <laughs> but no, so I want you to look at this from the lens of you. it might have accidentally happened to you, because this is like... A, it depends on the time that you were around. So, obviously, it's different for us. We have social media to fact-check things, even though we don't. Um, you know what I'm saying? Why'd you point at me? Because you just said that you don't fact-check anything. Neither do I. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. I wasn't attacking you. Shh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, do you know the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid? Of course I do. Okay. Do you know that where that comes from? Yeah. I said, of course I do. Like, of course I do. Like, everyone knows I don't know if everyone knows and I kind of said it from a place of like I like Kool-Aid which I know is like the wrong thing to say about that yeah it's like the wrong thing to say about that but yes I'm actually looking at my whole life from a lens of I really like Kool-Aid so I I don't know I do know that story a little bit I don't remember the details okay so if you've heard the phrase don't don't drink drink the Kool-Aid don't get brainwashed by something this is where it comes from Oh, this um, is the story? This is the story. The story? The original story of Don't Drink the Kool-Aid. <gasps> oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is where it comes from. So, 
It comes from a lot of different documentaries, all of them you can find on YouTube, but the main one that I've gone a lot through is from the Paradise Lost documentary. Um, but I watched a lot on this. I kind of lost my mind a little bit, so okay. there's going to be a lot of information, but I'll move quickly through it. So, um, basically, this is going to talk a lot about politics, a lot about socialism, communism, that kind of thing. It Yes, it is about those things, but it's also about the fact about like mental illness, drugs, and a power complex. So I don't want people to look at it and be like, oh, look at how bad socialism is. Not saying I'm a socialist, but you know what I'm saying. It's not just about that. It's about like a million and ten other things. So okay, this is where it all comes from. This starts taking place in the late 1960s and early 70s. And what's going on in the world, there's tons of crime. There's the war in Vietnam. There's the civil rights movement. There's all of these marches going on. There's a lot of political unrest that's going on in general. And so a lot of people are looking for meaning in a lot of different ways. It's post-war. Lots of stuff is going on. So don't look. Don't look. She's cheating. No, I was looking away because I had to burp. (sighs) Okay. Maybe you just should. I did. Oh. I was looking away and burping at the same time. Just focusing. You just called me out. Yeah. Shut up. Okay, so um, at this time, all this stuff is happening. People are really losing hope. Jim Jones appears, and he wants to save Jimmy. everybody. And I'm realizing how much I talk with my hands now that we're recording. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he comes with socialist ideals, but with Christian redemption. So it's kind of like this overcoat of mm. Christian ideals, but it's coming from, like, the liberation theology that, like, I already really love. So this is why I think I would have accidentally ended up here. Okay. Um. It's all about social change. It's about revolution. He's very anti-racism, anti-sexism, super into equality, at least in the beginning. Um, So more and more people start flocking to this kind of teaching because they are sick of old traditions because they don't work. And so he is realizing that people are poor and they're angry and discouraged. So he's coming in with like the exact opposite of that. And people automatically feel at home. And this is whenever churches were like white churches were very traditional like there's really no Mm -hmm. room for any kind of growth at all and so people feel really uncomfortable and stuffy in churches and this is when people are starting to feel like liberated and like it's right before like the free love free sex movement all of this stuff so people are just looking for like i don't know like free space to like be themselves and whatever okay so people feel really at home here um they say that it's like a black church soul vibe and that the services have life power and soul it's really really diverse it's like 50 percent black and then every everybody else is other minorities or white so it's like very not what you would expect at all um there's a lot of ex-drug addicts that come in to get clean um there's lots of women who are encouraged to take leadership roles which is the first time that has pretty much ever happened in a church um that they know of anyways and this is in indianapolis um, sought people that are vulnerable, that were able to promise things that they had never gotten anywhere before. So these are people that have already been marginalized for forever. And right. so now the fact that they even have this little glimpse doesn't matter who it's coming from, which yeah. I think is the part that whenever people get on this story, it's like, oh, look at how bad, like, it's, you get too much power from equality. That's not the problem. The problem is they would, they would have taken it from anywhere, but they At just happened point. to take it yeah. from this guy. Yeah. So, um, they do the evangelical healings um, at one point. So, like, things start to get, you know, more spiritual. It's from, like, kind of Pentecostal feeling. So some people don't really believe in these healings. They start questioning it. Uh, Jim Jones is reported to have said that, of course, the healings were set up. But the ends oh. justified the means. He wanted people to feel like they were going to come here and get healed and their lives were going to change. So, like, yes, invite all these people in. We'll make it work. Yeah. Um, he wanted more people to come in and join them so that he could save them. And so he had to stage some healings, whatever. He Hmm. said, 
I can I can get these people to do anything that I want to do for poverty and racial justice and for the downtrodden. So the end part of that sentence, okay, cool. The first part of that sentence. Right. I can get these people to do anything I want to do. And it's kind of like, now that I'm thinking about it, it kind of reminds me of the um, sequence of importance thing that we were talking about, but we always talk about yes. the crime ones. Yes. I can get these people to do anything I want to do. Oh, yeah, and it is for these things. But, like, no, right. it's not. And that's, I think, where we probably would have gotten mixed up mm-hmm. is where, like, for the mission statement of, like, for the downtrodden. Yep. We would have been like, oh, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Yep. But then you just skip over the super manipulative, like, cringy part. Yep. Yep. Um, so around this time, right before the church is founded, they have one biological son who they named Stephen Gandhi Jones, which we're going to get back to in a minute because what? <laughs> I really hope you guys could hear that. Emerson just broke the entire kitchen downstairs. And I know she, how does she still find a way to get into these podcasts? She's she downstairs. She's part of everyone. She's like, maybe if I just start slamming pots and bits around, they'll know that I'm down here. Um, okay. So then they adopt two Korean children um, and they're the, first white family in Indianapolis to or like she could be on the ground with like all those pots and pans that just fell over but carry on she's fine anyways back to the first family white family in Indianapolis to adopt a black child who they named James Warren Jones Jr. everybody refers to them as the rainbow family so everything seems all fine and good let's go backpedal a little bit into Jim's life so Jim grew up as an only child in Indiana in the boonies. Wait, Jim is the dad. Jim is the dad. And then they adopt an, another boy and they name him James? Yes, they have James Warren Jones. And Jim, Jim Jones Jr. <laughs> huh? <laughs> you said what? I said what? <laughs> okay, so first they have Steven, the biological son. Then yeah. they adopt the two Korean kids. Yep. And then they have the, then they adopt. Jimmy. Yes, then James. they adopt. Yeah, James. I don't know if he goes by Jimmy. He might. Let's just call him James. Did I make up Jimmy? Yeah. Or no, I said Jim. And I said Jimmy. Cut the cameras. (laughs) I don't know what's going on. Okay, so. Hi. Um, Oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to lick. You're not supposed to what? Look. I thought you said lick. I was like, me? No, you're not supposed to. No, you're allowed to. Um, Uh, okay. Uh, Okay, so. Grows up in the boonies of Indiana. His father was disabled in World War One, and so it made his mom the sole breadwinner. But she's basically bitter that her life turned out the way that it is. They don't make a lot of money. They're in poverty. She's tough and not loving. The dad's bitter. He's an alcoholic. So basically, Jim's life wasn't too easy from the beginning. Dad is, has trauma. So he ends up getting a surrogate mother from this woman at a local church, a Pentecostal church. And so that's the place that was kind of had taken him under their wing. He had no warmth or love in his home, and so he finds all the spirituality and all of this love in this holy rolling church, and so he kind of just, like, adapts to that, and he sees the preachers there as father figures that he didn't really get to have. Aww. So, um, he's known to be a really smart kid, strangely smart, like, one of those smart kids that doesn't really know how to relate to other kids. Mm-hmm. He has an extraordinary skill of getting people to do what he wants them to do. He didn't play normal kid games. He would create clubs and then preach to the other kids in the clubs like he would like just make up these neighborhood kid groups and just have like like he was, I, don't know, I don't know you know how you did weird stuff like that as a kid but like yeah did that's you make up weird. clubs as a kid yeah I, me and my friend um we called each other bb we still to we still do to this day but we made this this is so stupid we made a bb club I feel like you told me about this and i was bb1 she's bb2 right well we had like 17 other bbs this is so kind of like how we have meet one, meet two, and meet three. 
Why is this a common reoccurrence? I don't know why you keep doing that. (laughs) Anyways, it was like, we were in first grade and it was a very, no, second grade. It was a very exclusive BB club. It had to be, yeah. And we would like not let certain people be a BB. Yeah. And we let What's the point of a club if anybody can come in and be a BB? Yeah, well, we got in a lot of trouble for being exclusive. For being BB. Which like, aw. Imagine you're a little girl that wants to be a BB and they say no. Aw, you were so mean. I know. That's so rude. Hey, we actually all sat down and we talked about it, and you can't be a BB. <laughs> we all met together. And we we all had a club were, meeting, and we, we said you weren't BB material. It's so, awkward. <laughs> you can go now. <laughs> okay, go. Okay, so he had his own BB club, and he wouldn't. <laughs> and he was apparently wouldn't <laughs> let other people leave. He turns into this like horrible person. <laughs> this is you. You're Jim Jones. Okay. <laughs> Um, he was known for being mischievous and manipulative as a kid. So, Jim turned 16, and they moved to Virginia because his mom leaves his dad. And it's around that time he gets really intensely religious, and he would bring... He was that kid that brought his Bible everywhere. He was preaching racial injustice at the time. And a mm-hmm. white teenage boy from Indiana preaching against racial injustice is, like, wild to other people. So, other people are flocking to him just because they're like, what Where is going on? Um, and so... What he, year is this again? Um... <laughs> Uh, I think it's in the 70s. No, 60s. Okay. It's in the 60s. I actually don't know if I have years on all of this. Hee <laughs> hee. Uh. Okay, so um, he is smart and charming, so other people are really attracted to him and think that, he, and he's really smart. Like, he knows what he's doing. So, yeah. Yeah. So he meets Marceline Baldwin in his early 20s, and she's known for being compassionate. She's a nurse. She's older than him, really kind. So they get married when he is 18 years old and she's 22. Oh. Um, Jim starts to get on Marceline shortly after they get married, saying that she's too religious and that that bothers him. She's too religious? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is weird because he's known for carrying his Bible around. super religious, yeah. But it doesn't have anything to do with what's in the Bible. I'm, like, none of this has anything to do with that. So he starts to become really manipulative and controlling with her. He, uh, starts going to Indiana University at the time, but he isn't going to class very often. He's failing everything, but he's reading all the time. He's using the library, like, constantly. And that's where he starts getting really into socialism and communism. He decides that to get at his social aims, he wants to become a Methodist minister. Um, Also, at the same time, fun fact, he starts selling monkeys door to door to make money. Because he's that good of like a salesman. Like he could sell anything. Monkeys. Monkeys. And I I mean, you have to be pretty good to sell monkeys. No, I want a monkey. I was actually Googling it quite literally the other day because I want one. Like a little one. Not like a chimp. Because chimps are like. That is? Why? Because they operate like a tiny human. They're very smart. That'd be so awesome. No, it, it's going to throw poop on your walls. No. Was it with you whenever I was looking at this? No. Okay, because someone I, else said, they're going to throw poop at you, but I Googled oh, it. They really? won't. <laughs> yes. Don't worry, they I Googled will. it. They, they said chimps do that. Little monkeys don't. Oh my gosh. You're going to have to change its diaper. That'd be so cute. Little monkey poop? This is so little. <laughs> You're going to wipe a little monkey's butt? No, it's so smart. It'll do it itself. Anyways, okay, so Indianapolis isn't working out because people hate him because they're all racist. So um, he is really into integration, and the whole town is built on racism. They're very racist, so he moves the entire church to San Francisco, and surprisingly, people start following him. From Indiana. Yes, so people from Indiana are like, you know what, I'm sold, which sounds crazy, but we know people that do that, that move for churches. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's not really that crazy. I mean, it is, but it's not. So, there are videos of him interacting with his congregants, and I was watching them, and he, like, I totally, he was such a charmer. I totally would have fallen for it. He, like, knew stuff about them. He'd be like, 
oh, like he's talking to this old it just lady, very relational. and he knew stuff about them, and yeah. he'd be like, how are the kids? Like, blah, blah. And you probably thought like this guy just cares about me. Like, he's kind. He knows them really yeah. well. Um, so people refer to it as a black church that happened to be led by a white minister because over half the church at this point, um, they're all black. And he said, and they're all saying in these like documentaries and stuff, he talked black, he understood black people. He fought for black people's causes. He understood privilege. Um, he also followed what's considered most small black churches, moral compass of the social gospel that focuses on, on, you know, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, being an extended family, like a small family type of vibe, which is still, you know, a a cultural thing. Yeah. But he made it, like, more of a bigger thing and broadened the scope a little bit, and so people were really drawn to that. Right. Um, A lot of other cultures are very, like, collectivistic, not mm -hmm. individualistic, so Mm -hmm. it makes sense. Right. And, like, white people are not that way, usually. Yeah, no, they're really not. And he was, like, the exception to the rule, and so it was, like, crazy at the time. But even though he's progressive, he's also power hungry. He's operating from this white savior complex. And um, that's where it starts to get dangerous. And there's also a lot of other factors of like mental illness and drug use and stuff that make it. I don't think, I don't know. And his son says this later on in the documentary. I don't think he ever believed anything that he was preaching. I don't think it ever had anything to do with that. He just wanted to get more and more people. I think it was about power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is the problem, I guess, whenever it comes to socialism in general, because it's like, yeah. The idea sounds awesome in theory and like anybody should it's subscribe to it, but it's you have run. one person that has too much power. It yep. just it just ends up being yeah. a problem in itself. Um <laughs> Jim Jones begins preaching less and less about the Bible. <laughs> and um he starts talking about how he's leading the next generation. He I was listening to some of the sermons. He says, I, I want you to I want you to be what I am. It's a whole sermon about that, about yeah. how he wants I want them to you be to what be. he is. Mm-hmm. Um, in one sermon after he's already clung to his Christian ideals, that's what his whole church is based off of. And by the way, his church has now been, it's been renamed a couple times, but at this point it's called the people's temple. He throws his Bible across the church and says that people need to start believing in what they can see and not what they can't see. And what he's saying is him. He's like, Oh no, what you need, you need to believe in what you can see and not what you He's like, so this. he has never yeah. read the Bible. No, he d- it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry, you thought you were going to church? The unseen this and is, not the seen. This is so awkward that you moved your whole life to also, go to this church. Also, I do have a really quick funny story. So one time I was at church and the pastor's son was sitting like two rows in front of me. And he kept talking during the whole sermon because he had been there for like three services already. Mm-hmm. And so he was talking to his friend. And this old lady that's sitting like on my same row Mm -hmm. throws a Bible at the back of his head (laughs) very hard. She was so mad that he was very hard. Yes. And it like hit him in the back of the head and he turned around (coughs) and was like, what the heck? And she was like, shut your mouth. (laughs) And he was like, I'm sorry, what? And she was like, shut your mouth. Stop talking. (laughs) That's what I do whenever you talk during movies. I want to throw a Bible in the back of your head. But like, in the middle of the That's message. hilarious. Anyways. Carry on. It's very <laughs> it was funny. an old lady? It was a very old lady. And she was talking like like very loud. Like full volume. She was like, shut, <laughs> shut your mouth. <laughs> Stop talking. Shut your mouth. And it was just the fact that she like thumped him on the back of the head. And it's with the Bible. That's hilarious. That's a power move. Carry I'm on. I'm going to start doing that. Okay. Carry on. Okay, sorry. Jesus. Okay, so... <laughs> Um, some of the stuff that he's saying doesn't even sound really crazy from an activist perspective. And I can see 
why people bought into it. Like you just sound so sure. Oh, I don't know. Um, but you catch these little nuggets of self obsession and power and charisma and like how it ends up all coming back to how much he loves himself, not about his vision at all. So they start referring to him as father. He, um, asks him, they or yeah, he asks them eventually to start signing things over to him. So people are turning over their paychecks and their homes and he's making it sound like it's this tithe and it's like more and more. And people are, but keep in mind, these people have nothing and they're looking at this church as like, you're an ex heroin addict. This place saved you. You, this is, these people got you back on your feet. You listen. I get it. But this is where I think I would catch it. Well, no, but think about it. Yeah, but you're thinking from a perspective of you're not a heroin addict right now. I don't think. They were 100% heroin Okay, but I'm saying from the perspective, this is the people I that get he it. was getting to do that. Yeah, I get it. People that were already like, and if they, they're operating from a social gospel and he's like, they're thinking this is a decent guy. Yeah. So eventually he starts coaching a lot of women to positions of responsibility, which isn't common at the time. So they're like, oh, heck yeah. Like, finally. So women in their 20s and 30s are flocking there. In 1969, Jones starts to embrace free love and free sex, which is like a common thing around the time. It's like starting to be the sexual liberation thing. Um, he he somehow adopted this weird – he changes his tune a lot of different times. So one of the first things he says to them is, you know, all of you guys are all homosexual. I am the only one that is a true heterosexual. None of you guys are. Oh, I'm not even sure necessarily what that means. So at one point he's like, nobody should be having sex is how he like starts off. But eventually – it becomes this unwritten rule of he can demand sex from any of his congregants whenever he wants. He slept with both men and women. Um, once he preached a sermon in the middle of it, he said, I want everyone in this room to stand up if you've had sex with me. And then he would, if people weren't standing up, like that he knew that he had sex with, he'd be like, no, you stand up. You stand up. You stand up. And they were like, oh my right, god, this is awkward. Another time there was a church service where all the men were encouraged to raise their hands if they had sex with them. And a bunch of guys were raising their hands and the other men are looking around like, wait, I haven't had sex with him. Like what? And there was a guy who was being interviewed who was one of the, cause there's, I mean, this didn't happen so long ago. All these, a lot of these people are still alive that were there. And so oh. they're like, yeah, no, I remember whenever that happened and I was like, wait, what the hell's going on? So people would, and a lady compared it to like being married. She was like, if you, or you're in this honeymoon phase for a while and everything is good and whatever. And then like weird stuff starts happening or you start to get sketched out. Yeah. You want to talk about it, but you're not going to just bail immediately. Like they had sold their whole lives for this. Yeah. Like this was their livelihood. Yeah. So that's like what they equated it to, which I, that part I can also get, even though obviously I, from a perspective now I can say, yeah, that sounds crazy. But right. anybody that gets brainwashed. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so. 1977, Jim Jones is accused of sexual assault, physical abuse, and forced drugging at the People's Temple in San Francisco. But at this point, things have already gotten, like, pretty out of control. And now he's starting to inject speed. He's doing drugs, uh, a bunch of different kinds of pills. And a lot of the side effects for long-term use of these are paranoia. And he's really addicted, so he has to do crazy large amounts to even be able to, like function Mm -hmm. he's getting more Mm -hmm. radical more paranoid it's giving him all of this like insane manic energy and he's always threatening the congregation that they have to stay um vigilant because vigilant 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 there it is um i don't know vigilant no they have to do good (laughs) okay um okay so at one point during all this in the fall of 1975 
the People's Temple in San Francisco is set on fire. They were never able to determine if it was arson or if it was an accident, but Jim Jones uses this as fuel, as like, see how much America hates us. We need to get out of here because they're so threatened by our message. We need to like leave and start our own new world. So as media scrutiny starts to get stronger, Jim Jones leaves with a few of his followers to Guyana in South America. Wait, is this the Burj Khalifa? Wait, is that the tallest building in Dubai? I have no idea. I know of a cult that I'm going to try and figure out, but keep talking. I don't think it's that. So it's 150 miles from the capital of Georgetown. They create the city of Jonestown. So it's basically all jungle whenever they first get there. It's built on socialist ideals. It's supposed to be the Jim Jones paradise. Like we can finally start from scratch. Temple members are encouraged to come to Guyana to avoid government conspiracy. Um, And so people start moving their entire families down to Guyana. Um, first parishioners are sent down there with a small group to start constructing everything and making the houses and making the pavilion. That's going to be like where they host all of their like church gatherings and stuff like that. Um, a lot of these people have tied up all of their assets in people's temple at this point. So like all of their money is already there. So they feel like they have to go. They've been promised that this place would be the promised land. Um, Jim Jones refers to it in a speech as a heaven across the sea waiting for you where fa- when fascist terror brings concentration camps in the United States, you have a home. These lovely people are all happy. None of them want to return. They are all delighted with this lovely life. Whoa. Yeah. And if you look at the videos, if you didn't know these people were being like coaxed in one way or the other, you would think it probably does look like that. They look like they're having a grand old time. There's all these little kids running around and it's super diverse and it they're in this beautiful green, lush, like paradise looking place. So behind the scenes though, things obviously don't look this way. Um, if you disobeyed Jones, your whole family was instructed to come in and beat you. Once you're down in Guyana and you're stuck down there, public humiliation becomes more of a tactic than it was before. So people are called front and center during services to box with other people if they do something wrong, admit who they slept with in front of everyone, walk up there and get slapped over and over. Like if they did something wrong, it would be like, you know, you you spoke ill of the people's temple, come up here and admit it, and then 10 church members are going to come up and punch you in the face one by one. Oh. Yeah. Uh, people are stripped naked and having their bodies judged by everyone and oh raiding their naked bodies. So women would go up there and have to strip and then be like, okay, what, everybody, what do you think of her boobs? Okay, what do you think of her stomach? What do you think of her butt? Yeah. Mm-mm. Isn't that insane? Um, so the shame is like a really big tactic then. So mm-hmm. they also have sirens all around the camp for extreme emergencies. They're referred to as white knights. So he gets on this like intercom thing and he'll get into a mic and he'll be like, white knight, white knight. And all these sirens are like blasting and you have to get out of your room. And they live in, like, these bunkers. And you'd come out of your room and you'd have to go to the pavilion. Um, it would be considered life or death if you – if there was, like, these are the drills. But if it was an actual white night, it wouldn't, obviously, be a drill. Mm-hmm. Um, they would last all night. So they'd wake you up in the middle of the night to do these. And they would practice uh, mass suicide, which is considered a test of loyalty. And so they would, like, practice with juice and stuff, like, what it would be like to take oh. the Kool-Aid. Um, he does loyalty tests all the time where he has people see if he's going to turn, if they're going to turn against him. And so he would tell people that they would have to go ask, like he would assign people like, okay, Maddie, you're going to go up to Haley and you're going to say like, I really want to leave. Like, don't you really want to leave? And then you're going to report back to me. Like if she said she wants to leave or not. Oh. Yeah. Um, and then if they, people didn't report it or he would do it the other way where you, he'd say like, 
you have to go tell Haley that you want to leave. And if Haley doesn't report it to me, then she's in trouble because you have to report people that want to leave. Um, and if you didn't do as you were supposed to do, you would get publicly shamed in front of everyone. So that creates obviously a culture of like, no one's talking about anything with anyone because you can't trust anyone. They said like husbands were turning on wives, fathers on sons, the whole bit. Like Jeez. everyone was against each other. Mm-hmm. I also did confirm that the Burj Khalifa is in fact the tallest building in Dubai. So that I went to. Uh, I yeah. Okay. A little flex. That <laughs> um, I've been to, by the way. I actually that I went it. to the top floor. Oh, I actually did. Um, Why did I, you bring it up though? I thought for some reason that that's what the campground was called on this like documentary I watched, um, but it's not. I, I can't find what. It Burj is. Khalifa. Like Wiz, Wiz Khalifa. Khalifa, but Burj. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm trying to research. And I think it's based off the Wild Wild Country Netflix documentary, docuseries. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. It's really good. Okay. I have to but I think it happened in California, which is why I thought Khalifa. Okay. I'm not really sure. I'm glad we got to walk through this. Um, everybody. But I, yeah, I don't know what it, I don't, I don't know anything. Sorry. Uh, this is actually a secret, a behind-the-scenes secret of the podcast. I'm dumb. No. No. Oh, that's what you were going to say. No. Oh. Um, it's that usually something comes up that Maddie has to Google, and so for, a, like, a solid 15 minutes of every podcast, Maddie is Googling something. Oh, uh, yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Not every time. <laughs> yeah, so tired, yeah. Just shut up. Keep going. <laughs> okay. So. I heard every word you said. It was crazy. Wives <laughs> turning so on husbands, husbands turning on wives, reporting people. At the time, drug use is getting more intense for Jones. So much so that he is slowly killing himself. And his wife is coming to his sons, who are now older. Um, the son, uh, at the time that everything goes on in 1978, he's 19. So he's, like, old enough to obviously get a grip on what's going on. And he thinks his dad is crazy. It's not like his kids are brainwashed. His kids are like, what the hell is going on? And... He, his mom comes to Steven and is like, your dad, like, we have to get him help because he's doing all of these drugs. Like, no one knows he's doing all of these drugs. And he was like, no, let him keep doing drugs and let him kill himself because, like, this is getting way out of hand. Like, there's no way we can stop him now. So they're for the dad pretty much going OD and... Mm-hmm. The one son is, the one that talks in the documentary. I don't know ever, and I couldn't find the information on what happened to the two um, adopted Korean children, but the two sons got out. Okay. The um the black sun and the white sun. Black sun and white sun out of the rainbow. I don't know what's going on. Okay. So when people are getting to Guyana, no one back in the United States is hearing from them. And so concerned relatives are going to Congress people in California and being like, we need help because no one, like, we don't know what's wrong. Like, something's happening. So it's November of 1978. This is where all the action happens. Sirens start going off. Everyone in the church gets up and goes to the pavilion, which is what they're supposed to do. Um, there are people surrounding the pavilion with guns that are not aimed outward like they normally are. They are aimed inward. And so everybody realizes that something is starting to feel different, like there is a mood shift going on. So this was the first white night where they were like, wait a minute, this actually might be something that we might not just be practicing for anymore. Ooh. So one of the guys that's in the documentary um, who is a uh, member, is that what we call Sure. Sure. Uh, his name is Vernon Gosney. He talks in like a couple different documentaries, but he moves down to Guyana um, originally after his wife died and he has his young son left with him who is black. He's a white guy, but his son is black because his wife is black. Um, but she passed away. And so now it's just, he's a single dad. 
He joins in 1974 and then moves to the island. But once he gets there, he realizes he wants to leave. He's like, this is not what it was supposed to be. It's a lot of manual labor. It's not what they thought. Um, But he realizes that it's actually, it's, they were told that they would be free to leave whenever and go back to the United States to visit their family. And he realizes that it's actually not true. You can't do that. Yeah. It's also in the middle of nowhere. You'd be beaten if you said that you wanted to leave at all. And they have no, they have, no contact with the outside world. You can't send letters. You can't talk on the phone. You can't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, he said at one point, he says we were working for a cause that we believed in. He just kept moving the line back. We wanted so desperately to believe in the dream that we hadn't seen that the dream had become a nightmare, oh. which is really sad. Like if you, I like, if you really clung to those beliefs and all of a sudden you're realizing all of it's a lie. Yeah. Oh, it's just so terrible. So it's Tuesday, November 14th, 1978. Tuesday. There's a, <laughs> there's um, give or take 900 to 950 people that are living wow. on the island at this point. That's a little. Um, so there's a Congressman Ryan and his aide from California, plus some concerned relatives come down to investigate what's going on. 14 family members come down, uh, including some of which were former members who had gotten out, um, who either, I don't think they had gotten out from Guyana, but they had gotten out whenever they were in San Francisco. Don Harris from NBC comes, Tom Ritterman from the San Francisco Examiner comes down, and Jim Jones is immediately panicked. So, at the same time, they are permitted to, at one point, to create a basketball team um, for just, like, recreation, whatever. So, they rival against the Guyanese team, and so they have to go into Georgetown a few hours away for a tournament all around, like, the same time. So, Stephen, Jim's 19-year-old son, is on the basketball team. And so, the tournament is set for the time that the congressmen and all of them are coming to town, and so Jim is hesitant to let the team leave while all of this is happening because he wants it to look very like a united front. And he's getting paranoid at this point. But Jim Jones' wife um, is insistent that the team leave. And Stephen thinks that she was trying to get them out intentionally because she knew that, like, the jig was about to be up. Mm. And she knew something bad was going to happen and she wanted them out of there. Um, he, like, talks about the last time he saw his mom having this, like, really dramatic goodbye. And he said um that they were saying like we'll see you soon to each other and he remembers her crying whenever he said that and he thinks in retrospect that she knew that that wasn't going to be true yeah Yeah. um so in georgetown jim jones owns property so that's like the capital owns property that serves as their headquarters and when people are moving in and out or traveling or whatever they use that spot for the hub of where everyone goes so there's a man there um or there's a man named stephen harris who comes down to see his daughter has been taken down there by his ex-wife who went by a different name, but changed her name to Sharon because she like has a new life now. Okay. So Sharon is a diehard fanatic. She is like willing to go down with the ship, gets to be just as crazy as Jim Jones is. She's one of the top leaders. Um, and she had gotten remarried, but they have, they still have her and Stephen Harris still have this daughter Leanne together. And then, then they have two step siblings. So Sharon announces through radio to Jim Jones that the plane has arrived um, of the congressmen and all of them, and that they are determined to come toward Jonestown mm-hmm. to see what's going on. So Jim Jones sets off the white night alarm. He doesn't want people to come there, and he, at, at this point, has been giving all of these very, very long sermons. So he gives another really long, intense sermon that night and tells them they need to be fearing their relatives, that these people want to come and take you back to the U.S., that there are concentration camps there now. There are concentration camps that are for black people. There's border control. They're going to come back and they're going to torture you and they're going to kill you. They're public enemy number one. There's a nuclear war back there and you don't want to get yourselves involved. And they have no way to fact check any of this. Right. They're in the middle of nowhere. So that's what, you know, they think that everything is hell back there. Yeah. So November 15th, the next day, 
Congressman Ryan goes to Georgetown and he um, goes to their headquarters where Stephen Jones, the son, is there. And he was like, they were determined that they were going to go to Jonestown. So uh, Sharon and uh, Stephen inform Jim back at Jonestown. This is where it gets kind of confusing. That they order the basketball team to come back because they're like, okay, well, they're here. Now we're freaking out. And he's just completely freaking out. Um, Stephen knows that his dad is crazy. He has mental illnesses already, but he's taking a ton of drugs to operate like that. He's never sleeping because he's on so much speed. So he's, like, losing his mind. Yeah. So Jim is completely thrown over the edge, and Steven tells him, like, no, I'm not sending the basketball team back. We're not doing it. Like, we're, we're not. And so he – that's, like, complete – Jim is like, lost his mind. He's, like, what do you mean you're not coming back? And tries to get his mom on the phone to talk him into coming back. And she was, like, no, let Steven decide. And he was, like, no, I'm not letting Steven decide. He's freaking out. So it's like his final straw is the fact that now his son isn't listening and he's losing all of that control that he's worked so hard to get. So the next day, People's Temple's lawyer comes to Jonestown from the U.S. to negotiate. He says that it's in the best legal interest to let everyone in. And so Jim goes back and forth a million times, but the lawyer talks him into it and says, like, this is going to be good PR. You need to let them come in and just make everything look awesome, and then these people will get off your back. Mm-hmm. So... um, Basically, they prep everybody ahead of time. You have to lie about your living conditions. Don't tell people that there's multiple families living in one house. Lie about how you feel about America and what you know. Don't pretend like we told you anything. Because what we told you was the truth, wink, wink. But don't tell anyone that we told you. And lie about how happy you are. You're having... And so they have all of these practice runs. You can watch the videos. They have all these practice videos of them recording like, Yes, I'm so happy. This is so amazing. And he's like, Well, don't say it like that. Say it like this. It's... Freaky. It's freaky. So, the next day, Stephen Harris, the one who has that stepdaughter. I feel like, uh, I know I'm not in the position, so I don't know how you act when you're mm-hmm. um, brainwashed. brainwashed, but I just feel like I would be like, no, I'm not saying that. Well, then they'd beat the shit out of you. I, uh, yeah. Continue. Okay, so, and a lot of these people had kids. It's just easy to say, like, what I would do. Mm-hmm. Being that I've never been. Oh, I don't think I mentioned this. At this point, there's so many families that there's like 300 kids down here as well. Oh. It's a lot of kids. Yeah. So, sad. Are half of them his? Actually, I don't know. There might be some that are because he's sleeping with everybody. Yeah. Oh, my God. I bet you had syphilis or something. That makes you go crazy if you have that untreated for a while. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about syphilis. (laughs) Oh, I know too much about syphilis. (laughs) Um, Just kidding. I don't. Okay. So, um, Stephen Harris, the one that has that stepdaughter- uh, or um, not stepdaughter, his daughter that's down there. You know what I'm saying. Um, he's told that he's going to be able to see his daughter with his ex-wife for lunch, uh, and he won't have to go into Jonestown at all. And he was like, okay, I don't really care about seeing Jonestown. I just want to see my kid. So he's fine with that. Um, meanwhile, at the same time, the night before Vernon, that guy that we talked about with his son, comes up with a plan with his roommate and this friend Monica to slip the congressman a note that they want out of there. So they are like excited that they're going to be there because this is their way out. He knows that if he messes up though, he's going to be killed. Like they're, this is like the ultimate treason, but he's like, you know what? Screw it. I don't care. Mm. Jonestown people come back to pick them up at the airport outside of Jonestown from that little landing strip. So they land in Georgetown and they have to drive them in. Okay. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Picturing. Yeah. Whatever you just said. So, um, they end up having like some disagreements about how it's going to go, but they end up driving everyone into the actual jungle and they're realizing as they're getting in that if nobody lets them out or no one, yeah, if no one lets them leave, there's no way that they would ever figure out how to get back. So people are trying to get scared as they're coming in. 
um, it's obvious as they come in that it's it's impressive the whole place because it looks like it took a lot of labor to make it happen. Um, there's hundreds of people in the pavilion that are ready to greet and welcome these new visitors as if they've been so excited for them to get there. Like, oh my gosh. Meanwhile, everyone knows it was a fight. Yeah. The NBC reporter said that Jim Jones was very cordial, but he seemed weak and disorganized and just out of it. His speech was weird and off. He said he started talking about enemies and ranting about paranoia, and he called it just disturbing to interact with him. So Vernon doesn't know who is who, and he doesn't know who to pass the note along to, but he ends up giving it to this random guy thinking that it's the congressman. Oh, no. Um then they end up inviting the congressman to come up and speak and like say his piece, but he uh, he realizes that he gave it to the wrong guy. Oh, he gave no. it to the NBC guy. Well, it's not. It doesn't. Oh, the terrible. NBC guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh. it wasn't like a random. I guy. thought he gave it. No, right. Yeah. Um, the congressman gets up there, and this is also on video too. Um, he said, "Hey, just I just have come here to know more and to learn about you guys, and some people think this, this place is the best thing that's ever happened to them. So like everything's a okay. Everybody's like cheering, like yeah, yeah, whatever." So, Congressman Ryan comes over to Vernon later. Are you laughing at me stuttering? Yeah. Okay, it's fine. I have a lot of coffee. Um, he said, did you give that guy this note? Um, you have seats on the first plane out of here tomorrow. Mm. And Vernon tells him, I'm not sure that we should wait for tomorrow. We're all in danger. I want you to know that. And Congressman Ryan reassures him that now he's under congressional safety. He's going to be totally okay. Mm-hmm. And Vernon said he looked at him like, and he, he said like, no, I don't think you understand what you're dealing with here. Like, this isn't yeah. what you think it is. And he's like, no, you're going to be okay. And he was like, no, we're not. Done, 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 done. Next morning, everyone wakes up, including the visitors who stayed there. Um, Mrs. Jones, the wife, gives them a tour through Jonestown, including the house for the children. There are almost 300 children at Jonestown at this point. And people realize, and they've always known this, that she's always been there for the vision. She is, like, trying to stay true to the vision, even though she knows her husband is losing it. Down for the cause. Um, And everybody knows her passion is the kids of Jonestown. She would, like, all, all she cares about is making sure that their school is good and that they're taken care of. Um, as the day goes on, people are getting bolder about wanting to leave. Um, but whole families eventually are telling the congressman, like, we want to get out of here. And so he's realizing that, like, something is up. Mm-hmm. Vernon is approached with a paper by Jim Jones that says he's going to have to sign his son to stay in Jonestown and he can leave. But he, his son has to stay. Why? Well, he just wants more people down there, more people to influence. Now, the thing is, his son is black, and he has been conditioned to think that there's a race war going on in the United States and that his son's going to get killed in a concentration camp whenever he comes back. So he thinks, like, yeah, this place is bad, but it's going to be worse for him there. Oh. So he's conflicted, but he ends up signing the paper and saying, like, yes, you can keep your son here. As people are packing up and getting ready to leave, security guards are lining the inside of the houses just trying to intimidate people. So they have guns. The congressman is coming in to make sure that everyone is safe, and he's checking in and saying, like, get your guns out of here. These people are leaving. Um, They do an interview with Jim Jones at that time, and he's becoming really tense and erratic, and he's going on about this media smear against socialism. So um, Vernon hugs his young son and tells him that he'll see him soon. Um, Jim Jones is telling everyone goodbye, and he's not being threatening at all. And he's like, you know what? You can come back and see your family whenever you want. You're always welcome here. And this is about 15 people out of 1,000 people that are leaving. So people are like, don't make a big deal out of a gym. It's just 15 people. Mm -hmm. But Vernon says that he thinks that Jim knew that it was a crack that had been opened and that Jones was losing control, and that was, like, the one thing that he needed. Yeah. So right before leaving, Congressman Ryan is talking to Jim Jones when he's attacked by a cult member. 
with a knife and he has blood spattered all over his shirt. He's disheveled. And he's realizing now, like, we have to get out of Jonestown, like, now because people are losing their minds. And so he is just, he needs to get them on a plane. So they go from Jonestown to Georgetown. Um, I know. Jonestown to Georgetown. Jonestown to Georgetown. Now, this is also kind of where it gets confusing, so I'm going to try to keep it. But there's so many stories going on at one time, but they're all crazy, so I can't, like, not have them. Sure. So... Leanne, Leanne and Steven back at headquarters. So we're talking about the dad who has his ex-wife, Sharon, and the daughter, Leanne. So um, he ends up getting to see Leanne, who is 21 at the time. Yeah. Okay. So now Leanne's dad um, has come to see her, and so they end up... Um, what the F? In order comes through the radio. Okay. So... The white knight siren goes off shortly after the Congress people leave. Um, So Leanne is having dinner with her father upstairs when Sharon comes in and tells her that a call has come in for her. So Sharon tells her, the order has just come through. We all have to die, was the phrase that she used. Now, Jim Jones' son is in the room as this is happening. And he said that very calmly, uh, Leanne just said, okay. And then he said, should I have dad go? Like, do you want me to have him leave? What? Yeah, because the dad, who is just seeing his kid after years, she's, like, having this really nice lunch with him, not thinking anything is wrong. And then mom comes in and says, it's time. The orders come through. We have to die. And she's like, okay, I'll tell dad to leave so we can die. What? Yeah. So Jim Jones' son said he's over. He's overcome with dread once he sees this. Potassium cyanide had been sent in earlier that day. That was to be mixed with tranquilizers and then mixed with Kool-Aid. Or juice. So Sharon sets up the potassium cyanide um, while Leanne goes to tell her dad that he needs to leave so that, you know, she can kill herself. So Leanne goes up, cuts dinner short, tells her dad that he can pick her up tomorrow at 7 a.m. and they can spend the day together. So he's excited. Sharon comes and um, kisses him goodbye on the cheek. And he was like, I should have known that. That was like an omen. But like Mm. it was she was just like saying goodbye. So now different different set of events. We're at the Georgetown airstrip. Um, Everyone is still uneasy. They're like, get us out of here. We don't feel safe until we're actually out. People are boarding. A tractor load of men from Jonestown comes up, and they just pull up next to them. There are two planes. Monica and Vernon get on the small plane. Everyone is checked for weapons before they get on. Um, But there's one guy who had hopped on at the very last second, and they're like, wait a minute. That guy hasn't been checked for any kind of weapons. So, um, they're about five minutes away from flying. Cult members are trying to rush it along, um, or the ex-cult members that are trying to leave. They're trying to rush it along, but the men in the tractor all of a sudden pull out assault rifles, including the guy who was about to get on the plane with them. And so, everybody pulls out assault rifles, and they just open fire on all of these people. What? So, people are ducking and screaming. It's an open air track, an open airway. So people are just, like, running and screaming, trying to find any place to hide, and they're in the jungle, so they need to, like, find brush immediately and just hide behind it. Oh, my god! So that, there's this happening. There's also suicide happening at headquarters. And now we're back in Jonestown, okay? Okay. Back in Jonestown, Jim Jones has his congregation in front of him uh, after he's just done the white night. The whole time he has people behind him, like little henchmen, that are mixing things. And he's going on this whole, do you lay your life down for the cause? Would you Would you give up your life for, for what we've done here, for, you know, our new world? We can never have heaven here, but we can have heaven in the next life, this whole thing. He says, we have been betrayed. 
here's what's going to happen at Georgetown. I have an informant who is going to be on the plane and his, is who is going to shoot the pilot. That plane is going to go down in the jungle because traitors don't deserve to live. And us, because we're noble and have fought the good fight, we should rather die than to be separated. They ruined a good thing and we're too good for this world. We can't have our children raised in the depraved U.S. So some people, you can hear it. It's, it this whole thing is recorded. So Whoa. you can hear everything if you search it. Um, some people are protesting because of the sake of the children. So the argument is, like, well, wait, what about the kids? The kids shouldn't have to die for this. And yeah. he's saying, but don't you want your children to know peace? Do you want this terrible world for them? Like, you're saving them from how awful this world is. Um, his thing is, our lives are a protest against what is being done. So this is going to be seen as this noble effort against fascism. Um, the truckload of men all come back around this time and they whisper in his ear while he's, he's sitting on like this big chair in front of all of these like people. And he says, it's all over now. Done, 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 done. Bye. Now back to headquarters. Um, Leanne and Sharon go upstairs. They get the little kids that are the two step siblings go upstairs. Um, and they give the kids their potassium cyanide and wait until they die. Oh, then Leanne, then Leanne and Sharon split each other's baby. throats. <gasps> yeah. Why didn't they just take the cyanide too? Moving on back to Jonestown. Jim is cheering Ugh. this mantra the entire time while he's having, basically the goal is we have to kill the kids first and then all the adults can kill themselves. So he goes and he gets the cyanide and he's saying, just take a drink, get moving, have a drink, have a drink, just take a drink. It's, it'll be, it'll be fine. It's going to be peaceful. Like it's, disgusting it's haunting it's so gross so kids i, I feel sick yeah actually. so then there's certain like mothers that are pulling that are having to be pulled away from their kids like this whole uh, gross terrible uh, scene honestly don't listen to the video if you're like squeamish because it's it's like really terrible i like couldn't sleep after i listened to it oh um but if you're refusing to take it like people are being held down and having it injected into their mouths uh back at the airstrip one of the guys from NBC walks around oh. after hiding in the bush and sees that the temple members have also been shot in the head to fi be finished off if they were, like, still alive. So Don Harris from NBC dies. Congressman Ryan dies. Greg Robinson, who's a photographer with the paper. Bob Brown with NBC. And Patricia Parks, who is a defector, one of the women that left. Oh, my god! Um, have all been shot. Vernon was also hidden in the bushes. He comes to several hours later. He passed out. And he heard people walking around looking for survivors to shoot them. Mm. And, um, yeah. So was, did he play dead or did they kill him? No, they didn't kill him. He he managed to – he didn't play dead. He, like, hid. He was just oh, gone. Okay. Um, so only a handful Gosh, of so temple members inside of Jonestown survived. There was one woman that they talked about named – Piason Thra, I'm not exactly sure, 76-year-old woman. Um, she hid under her bed while all of this happened, and so she woke up to this gruesome scene the next morning. Not woke up. She, like, eventually realized it was safe enough to come out and saw that all of these people were dead. Jim Jones' wife was physically restrained until the last child died, and then once the last oh. child died, she went up and just took the cyanide. Isn't that so terrible? Because that's all she cared about. Yeah, so she was restrained, and then the last child died, and she was like, you know what? F this. Fine, I'll take it. Because she was probably just like, I, you know, so defeated at that point. Oh, That's it's so awful. Horrible. Um, Jim horrible. Jones. I hate this story. I know. Jim Jones had someone else shoot him in the head. Um, his son is talking about this later on. And he was like, that, out of all of the things that pissed me off, that pisses me off the most because he is just a coward. Like, he couldn't even do it himself. He made this 
this nine there's 909 people that ended up dying oh my god yeah he's like knows that many people right that's why no one talks about it It drives me crazy like how so he asked all these people to like sacrifice himself Mm -hmm. and he couldn't even do it nope and he's yeah. like, that is cr- that like pisses me off. Yeah. Um. And his son said, like, I-, I want everyone to understand that Jim Jones knew he was a fraud the whole time this was happening. He just needed someone else to do it because he knew that he was a fake and like all of this was a lie, which is probably why he needed everyone to go down with the ship because he was gonna yeah. kill himself too. So, oh. in the end, at the end of the day, nine hundred nine people died. Some people got out um, ahead of time, but. You know, that that oh, is the story uh, of drinking the Kool-Aid, the Jim Jones nightmare. That makes me sick. Mm-hmm. So all uh, of this to say, I'm really glad that I wasn't alive then because I think I would have accidentally joined that cult. No, you would not. I think I might have. No. By accident and then like accidentally gotten brainwashed. I'm I, Listen, I don't think I'm above brainwashed, being brainwashed. Maybe my issue is that I do. No, I know I you do. Which is why I think we should talk more about cults because I think that you're living in a fantasy world. Uh, and I trust myself. I do. I, I like don't think I would naturally, you know. I'm trying to find out. So how many people died? 909. Barf! Yeah. I hate it. Very I hate terrible. it all. I can't so imagine much. being Stephen Jones and the other son too, um, James. I can't imagine, like, living your life after that knowing that your dad killed all of those people, you know? No. No. And, like, how are you supposed to have a healthy worldview after that? Like, your whole yeah, life is just a lie. You need a lot of therapy. Because yeah. even your mom, like, doesn't even sound like she would have been a bad person, but how do you justify how all of that right. happened? I don't. I, I don't know. know. I don't like it, though. I don't know either. This one right. made me, like, I laid down halfway through because I literally started to feel sick. Actually, yeah. less than half, or more than halfway. Yeah. Um, anyways, I don't like that. Um, okay, so we're going to go now. Uh, hope everybody's, you know, not traumatized by that. But we figured if we had to be scarred by weird sex stories, you could be scarred by, I don't know, mass murder? I don't know. You Okay. I, like, actually don't feel good. What? I'm just trying to figure out how to help. You know oh, no, I mean? no, it's okay. It's okay. I can't tell if I drink too much coffee or it's the children or both. <laughs> was it the coffee or the children? Both. It was both. I don't know. All right, everybody. Well, we're gonna go. <laughs> okay, bye. Goodbye. Aboriginal.